This morning we're speaking out of Matthew chapter 5. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount for the next eight or nine weeks. And this morning I have the wonderful and quite daunting topic of covering all of the Beatitudes. And I've simply titled my message, Blessed Are You. Hey, blessed are you. What a great, encouraging message, right? Just you're blessed. Who doesn't want to be blessed? Hands up. All right, so it looks like we're all here. So lend me your ears, and we're going to listen to Jesus, the words of Jesus this morning, the greatest of all teachers, as he explains to his disciples what a blessed life looks like. What does a flourishing life look like? Well, this is what Jesus says. We'll read from verse 1 in chapter 5. Seeing the crowds... He, talking about Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to the words of Jesus this morning, our Savior, our Messiah, the living one, We don't want to come lightly. We don't want to come casually. We want to come with a sense of awe in our hearts that we are listening to the Most High God explain to us how to live lives that are blessed and flourishing and good. I ask, Lord, we've, we've heard this text so many times. We've misunderstood this text so many times. We've used this text like a stick on one, on one another so many times. And I pray that this morning you'd open our eyes freshly to see what you mean, how it applies into our lives, how it encourages us, how it encourages those around us, what it means for us as a church, what it means to Stellenbosch, our town. Would you come by your Holy Spirit and do those things? In Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Right, so let me orientate us. Uh, I, might, I might jump around a little this morning, all right? I feel, I feel so full from the week of preparation, in a good way. I feel just so full. These Beatitudes are so beautiful, and I feel such a, a fresh set of eyes on what Jesus was trying to say that it might come out a little bit all over the place. Hopefully not. Hopefully you'll track with me, all right? But I want to just start off by orienting us again, where Ollie did so well. Bro, it's so great to have you in the pulpit again. We just love hearing your voice. But, um, and Debs, just incidentally, I know that when you're preparing, especially in the marketplace role, the wife is paying a, a significant price. Your family paid that price for you to prepare. So thank you 
Um, but Ollie started last week in chapter 4, because that's really where we need to go. It, be- it begins where Jesus starts to say to the disciples, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Right? That's where this whole thing begins. John the Baptist brings the same message, and, and Ollie helps us see, you can go and get it online, how repent is more than just an emotional response. It is that. It is regret. It is sadness at our sin, but it's much more. It's also an actual turning. It's metanoia. It's, it's worm to butterfly. It's a change. That's the idea. And it's, it's, it's this way of describing repent, of actually turning, is basically, it's another way to say it, is it's Jesus's invitation to leave a road that leads to a cursed life. That's what it is. Jesus is saying, you need to turn away from the road you're on. The road you're on leads to a cursed life. It leads to an unflourishing life. He says, repent for there's a new road. It's called the kingdom of heaven. Repent, turn, change, because the kingdom of heaven is here. Here's a new road, and guess what? This road leads to blessing. This road leads to a flourishing life. That's why we turn. It's not turn, burn. It is that too, but that's not the motive of the heart of Jesus. When he's saying turn, I always think of when I, when I hear Jesus saying that phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's, it's held in, in, in um, tension with Jesus looking at Jerusalem and it says he wept and he had compassion in his heart. And he said, I want, I long to gather you like a, like a mother hen. Have you ever watched a mother hen when a storm is coming and the rain is pouring and she grabs her, the little chickens come running, the little chicks, and, and she gathers them. This is the heart of Jesus. This is the heart of repent and turn for the kingdom of heaven is here. What a a wonderful thing. The kingdom of heaven is here. Yesterday I was with my parents. My dad showed me a picture or actually a video of thousands of Jews this week. It's the new year in Jerusalem. Well, the whole of Israel actually. Um, (laughs) You guys are very quiet this morning. Thousands of Jews at the Wailing Wall, beautiful in some sense, They're crying out, singing. They, they, someone chants something and they all sing it back, thousands of voices, waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the Messiah. But the kingdom, Jesus says, is here. It's already here. And his life, he shows that they don't have to wait anymore. And then Jesus does something wonderful because he doesn't just tell them to turn and repent, but he begins to demonstrate that the kingdom of, is, of heaven is here. He sees someone blind, and he says, be healed, and suddenly they see. He sees someone crippled, and he says, walk, and they walk. As you read the Gospels, he sees someone dead, and he says, live, and they live. Right? Doesn't that sound like the flourishing life? If you're the person who's crippled, if you're the person who's blind, if you're the person who's dead, for goodness sake, doesn't it sound like a good life to be healed, to be raised from the dead? Imagine someone came into university on Monday, someone that you know has a long-standing illness or a long-standing physical deformity, and they were completely healed. Wouldn't that be a good thing? Wouldn't that be a good thing? I think it would. I think it would be a wonderful thing. And so what happens invariably at the end of chapter 4? Great crowds begin to follow Jesus. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Great crowds begin to follow Jesus. And then this is why it's important. Because in chapter 5, as we, as we start in chapter 5, seeing the crowds, it says, 
He went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him. Just say that with me. His disciples came to him. We're going to try that again because we are going to warm up this morning. You know, I can't have us so quiet. Come on. His disciples came to him. Now, let me ask you a question. Who is Jesus talking to in Matthew chapter 5? Okay. Let me ask you another question. Is it good to see a lion? Random question, right? Is it good to see a lion? Well, that's a great answer. What, what does it depend on? All right, you, you're with your friend and wherever the Kruger is up in Limpopo. He's got a farm next door to the Kruger. You go walking one day and um, you get thoroughly lost. You get so lost that you can't find your way back and it's dusk. And you don't know where you are. And you see a lion. Maybe you see a whole pride of lion. Is it a good thing? Not at all. All right? But there's me at about eight years old, cruising in a Toyota High Ace with my mom. And she loves the Kruger. And we are looking all day for lion. That's, that's the animal we're looking for. We're looking for lion. And then you see that long line of cars, red taillights in the dusk. If you've been to the Kruger, you know what I'm talking about. And you're waiting in the line, wondering, is it someone who stopped just for a hyena, or is this the, is this the moment? And you see this pride of lion, little cubs. Is that a good moment to see the lion? A wonderful moment. See, it's all about perspective. Right. Is it, here's another question for you. Is it good to zip line? <laughs> we'll get more partisan answers on that one. I saw a YouTube short this week which has just been living with me. I had so much joy out of it. I don't know why these things tickle me so much. But it's of a lady standing on what she thinks is a zip line over a massive gorge. Some of you might have seen this. But it's not actually a zip line. Her friends had tricked her. It's one of those swings. And so as, as it releases on the zip line, instead of zipping across the gorge, she plunges to what she is sure is her death. It's fantastic if you can find it on YouTube. She screams blue murder, right? And she doesn't stop on every swing. <laughs> She's just, in her mind, she is hanging by the spider thread of life, right? Let me ask that lady, is it good to zip line? It depends. It depends. Perspective is huge. Guys, one of the most important things I'm going to say all morning is that when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, perspective in the next, next nine weeks is huge. If you come to the Sermon on the Mount considering it to be some sort of tick box that you need to fulfill in order to enter the kingdom of heaven... If you need to do these things in order to be acceptable to God and to come into the kingdom of heaven, you think you're ziplining, but you're about to go into the abyss. Perspective. Perspective. It's absolutely crushing. I mean, listen to this, right? We, I'm, not, I'm not covering this this morning, but I'm framing our series, and I need to say it because... The Jews that are, that are reading Jesus speaking to them about anger, about lust, about these, all these different things that the Sermon on the Mount covers, if they look at it, they can't even keep the law as it is. It's absolutely crushing them. And then Jesus says, hey, listen, you've heard it said in the law, don't look at a woman lustfully. I mean, don't, no, sorry, wait. Don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. 
He says, I tell you, don't even look at a woman lustfully. So Jesus goes, look, 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 raises the bar. He says, you've heard it said, don't murder your brother. I tell you, don't even be angry with your brother. Right? Jesus says things like, if you look at someone and you're struggling with lust, cut your eyes out. If we're going to take this literally, right, we've got a blind church. Right? Me first in line. That's the truth. It, it, it goes, the ultimate blow is right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now guys, if you, is it good to see a lion? It, it depends. If you approach this, if your perspective on the Sermon on the Mount is wrong, you will be anything but blessed. You will be anything but flourishing. So isn't it wonderful that if, out of all the ways that Jesus could have started this Sermon on the Mount, of all the ways He could have started it, He starts it by showing us right up front how good it is to be blessed. He starts by saying, blessed are you, blessed are you. Eight times, nine times, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. He wants us to know that the kingdom of heaven is here and we don't cut our eyes. We don't cut out our eyes. Jesus comes and he does something completely opposite. What does he do to the blind? He heals. He doesn't go and say, look at that guy over there. Rightly so. Rightly so. All of you should cut your eyes out. No, no. Jesus goes and says, let me spit on the ground. Let me touch this mud. Let me put it on his eyes. Look, he can see. I came to bring blessing. The kingdom of heaven is here. And if you read this, if you read this with a Pharisee's view, if you read this of God's trying to nail me, God's trying to, God's trying to make me do all these things, God's trying to make me, it's impossible. You're going to feel absolutely crushed. If you read this of the perspective of blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, blessed is the man, blessed is the woman. Here, let me touch your eyes. Don't cut them out. I want to touch them. I want to heal you. That's the perspective. And you're going to need that over the next nine weeks because you're going to be tempted over and over again to read it like that. It's a human default. It's like a, it's like a bowling ball bias. We always go that direction, right? And so I started out and I, I went on a, a wild tangent about zip lines and lions and all sorts. But what did I ask you? Who did Jesus call? His disciples. The reason I'm doing that is because the perspective we need is that Jesus is talking to his disciples. Jesus is describing to people who are already in the kingdom what it looks like to be in the kingdom. He's not giving them rules of how to get in. He's saying this is who you are because you're already in. Do you get that difference? And I've called them today, you're going to see every point I make is called, it starts off with the already disciples. The already disciples. And I've done that because I'm prone like you to think, I need to do this. I need to do this. I need to achieve. I need to be. And I'm trying to help us with perspective. So one more time, I know I'm laboring it, but this is vital. He is not laying down laws about how to come into the kingdom. Jesus is describing what their lives can look like, the blessing that their lives can have because they are already in the kingdom. All right. Can someone tell me you've got it? All right. Guys, I'm going to quickly, as quickly as I can, 
go through the eight Beatitudes or nine Beatitudes, depending on how you count them, explain them because I think they're massively difficult sometimes to actually grasp, and with our, especially with our, our kind of Western perspectives. And then we're going to finish out just by looking at a few little implications for our lives. All right, can we do that? So we're going to just go one by one. Number one, already disciples of Jesus know that they can't impress God. That's the first thing the Beatitudes teach us. Right, here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This has nothing to do with financial poverty. There is no blessing in financial poverty. We're not preaching a gospel of it's good to be poor. Give away all your money and be poor so that you can inherit the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not saying that. Jesus is using the word poor because it's a great description of the type of spirit that we need to have, that we already have as disciples of Jesus. Think about being poor, just in the physical sense. Throw me some ideas of what does it mean to be poor? Very poor. Hungry? So you mean literally hungry, unable to buy food, yes. Homeless sometimes, yes. Do you, think, do you think a desire to get out of it perhaps? Any other ideas? Come on, throw me some ideas. No? No way to change anything, no power. No power in society. If you're poor, if you're the homeless guy on Dorp Street, do you think people are asking you your ideas of how we should run Stellenbosch? Powerless, right? Hungry, think about hungry. Dependent. Desperate, what? Deprived. Dependent on those around you. Despondent, yes, all these things. All these, all these emotions, right, that would come with being poor. Do you think you think about being poor a lot when you're very poor? Preoccupied, right? I think when you're very poor and you're worried about where your next meal is coming from, it's a concern. It's a concern. So what Jesus is saying, very simply, is that there are spiritual parallels. Jesus is saying that we are blessed when we realize, like someone who is physically poor, that we desperately want to escape it. That's what he's saying. We want to escape it. Jesus is saying, you're blessed when you've come into my kingdom and your heart is beginning to realize the sin and that you want to get away. From this sin. He says you're blessed when you recognize that you can't, in any of your own effort, change your own circumstance. That you desperately need someone to reach in and to give you food or to give you a job or to give you a helping hand or to whatever it might be. For that physically poor person, Jesus is making a spiritual parallel. And he's saying, blessed are you when you realize how poor you really are really, really are. He says, blessed are you when you realize that you have no power. You can't change yourself. You can't even muster up the desire to change yourself. Even the desire comes from God. It's a mysterious thing to watch someone come to faith and begin to journey with God and to begin to see these things awaken in their heart. It's a mysterious thing. We're dependent on Him. We find ourselves hungry. Sometimes we find ourselves pleading for His help, like a beggar. Please help me. Please help me, God. Friends, there's a great humility in being poor in spirit. 
just like in the physical poverty. There's a great humility. We realize we can do nothing without God. Nothing. We can't heal ourselves. We can't find the power we need. We can't seem to get it together. And in the rare moments where we do get it together, we can't seem to keep it together. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> Michael Eaton, who's one of my heroes, he's passed away now to glory. What did you say, Ollie, last week? Something about moving a dress or something? <laughs> he keeps using the word. When you read, read what he writes about the Beatitudes, he keeps reading the words congratulations. He keeps writing it. He says the Beatitudes keep on saying, it's like Jesus saying, congratulations, congratulations. Now, now you know that you are experiencing poor in spirit. Now you feel it. Now in that very moment where you feel this absolute poverty of spirit, Jesus is saying, congratulations, you're blessed. Congratulations, now you get it. And, and, and we think, what? Right here in, in my mess, God, do you know how messy I am? Do you know the thoughts I have? Do you know how sinful I am? Do you know how poor I am? And God says, yes, right there. Right there, you're ready for blessing. You're being blessed. It's quite a thought, eh? Should we go to number two? I sang too loud in the worship. Didn't these guys do well? So, we've been praying for God to raise up worship leaders. And we've had, I think that's week eight without a scream. I mean, can we have a hallelujah for that, right? Eight weeks, I think we've had people, live, live living, breathing, warm people leading us in worship. Thank you, Jesus. In keys that we can actually sing in, right? I bless the Lord for the scream when we don't have anyone, but that is, that is great. Number two, verse four. Blessed are those, or blessed, I don't know which way it is, are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I need to go quicker. But friends, this is not just the fact that you're upset about something. That your take-a-lot order was supposed to arrive on Monday, and it, it didn't. This is a lot more than just mourning about something going on in your life. Although the scriptures speak very much about a God who comforts us, I'm not disparaging that. I'm not disparaging sadness. I'm not disparaging that at all. But this verse, blessed are those who mourn, is speaking about already disciples, I'm going to keep using that, grieving over the slowness of the coming of the kingdom of God. We mourn, we grieve that the kingdom of God is not fully here yet. The poor abound among us. We've been gathering as pastors, you know this, for years in this town. Recently, six of us have been gathering with Robin around biblical justice in our town and what it could look like. And one of the areas we're looking at is around homelessness and just saying, God, Surely we can help in some way, but it's such a complicated thing. So wait for, I'm not going to be a sadly, but next year we're doing something called the pop-up store or something like that. There's some fancy name where there's an opportunity to clothe people, to feed them, but then more importantly on the back end, 
to pray with them. Just the dignity of someone laying hands and just praying, asking them, can we pray for you? It's going to be the street store, that's what it's called. But the poor abound. How many of us, even in the last two years, have lost someone you love because of cancer or sickness? Just give me a hand. Just a hand up. How many of you have lost somebody? It's a lot of hands. It abounds. Relational brokenness abounds. Divorce, decay, breakup. Our bodies, we don't have new bodies yet. The righteous are still persecuted. Friends, if we could put a sound, if you could put a sound to the, to the, to the sound of the world, if you had to put a, what's this, what's this thing called, the heart thing? Stethoscope. If you had to put a stethoscope on the heart of the world, what is the dominant sound you would hear? Joy? Celebration? Crying. Right? And more than anything, the already disciple of Jesus mourns because of my part in the sin. My part. My brokenness. We are not what we ought to be, and so we mourn. That's what this is saying. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We grieve, but we know this is not the end. That's the joy. That's why, we, that's why we're comforted. Already, something is changing. Something in the already disciples is changing. Can you feel it if you follow Jesus? Can you see it? Can you feel things beginning to change? Can you feel, as Narnia so beautifully says, Aslan is on the move? Aslan is moving through the land? Jesus says they shall be comforted. Friends, I want to tell you this morning that we are already being comforted. We're already seeing the first green shoots. They might be small. They might look like they're a little bit anemic and, and whatnot in our own lives. But we're already seeing it in our own life, like a promise of what's to come where we will sin no more. We face earthly grief, death, horrible things. And yet we feel somehow something in our hearts that doesn't quite give in to it in the way that it used to anymore. A strength in our hearts that we don't know where it comes from because there's green shoots of God already in our hearts promising us the kingdom that is yet to come. Jesus says, take heart. I've overcome the world. We're going to come back to that again just now. Let's go to number three. Already disciples, remember this is a description of who we are if we follow Jesus. Not a tick list of how to get there. Already disciples cultivate meekness not a word you hear every other day. You're looking very meek today, right? means humility. Two practical ways to understand this is that you leave your case to God. When it describes, when scripture describes Jesus as meek, it speaks about a man who left his case to God, right? And the other one is the other, it's the twin sister of this, it's not rising up to defend yourself and your rights. So if you have to ask, what is a meek person? A meek person is someone who leaves their case to God and so consequently does not rise up to defend their own rights and claim their own rights. 
Does anybody struggle with this? Because, oh man, oh man, this one gets me. (laughs) This is my family drama. We love being right in my family. Because we mostly are. (laughs) You see? You see? Man. And even in my heart, I see little green shoots of God beginning to help me to lay down my need to be right or to defend myself. There's nothing that irks me more than feeling like someone else has the wrong idea about me. And I'm, I'm, everything in me is desperate to help them understand why they misunderstood. Blessed are the meek. See, it's so powerful because when we leave our case to God, we create opportunity for God to show His greatness. We create opportunity for, for God to be able to fight for me. When I don't fight for myself, I, I, I leave room for God to fight for me. Who would I rather have fighting for me? Me, little puny Paul? Or God, the King of the universe, creator of all things by the spoken word of His mouth? It creates opportunity for me to be humbled again and again. My heart is humbled because I see the greatness of God. That's what humility is, seeing the greatness of God. I I can't, when I think about these things, in in moments of clarity, it's like you're living in like a fog, and then suddenly you have like a moment of clarity. In that moment of clarity, I'm like, what am I doing fighting for my teeny-weeny little patch of earth here, like a pigeon that's, you know, it's got 50 other million pigeons around it, and it's just like picking on this little piece of ground. Like, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. Right? That's what it's like. And then God is like, hey, I got it. Blessed are the meek. And it ends with a promise, for they shall inherit the earth. You are busy picking on your little piece of earth, and God's like, I've got the whole earth for you. I've got it all. Trust me. Look at my greatness. Have some humility. Don't scrap like a beggar for your little patch of land. Don't go and tell everybody who will listen to your story, This is my case. This is, don't you know God can defend you? We see this beautifully in the life of Moses. When Moses is criticized, when people come up against Moses, you go and read in the Old Testament, you'll see what he does. He falls on his face. He goes to God. He goes to God again and again. And obviously, we see it so profoundly in the life of Jesus. The very meek one himself, humility, choosing to follow the the Father's plan for his life. Ultimately, choosing to leave his case before God, the case to his death, where Pilate says, are you this king? Defend yourself. Why are you quiet? It's like he's goading him. I think like in that moment, like I would be like, oh, I didn't want to say, but you know, now that you ask, Jesus is quiet to death. Number four. Is this helpful? Okay. So I feel like I need a lot of affirmation this morning. Maybe it's just an insecure week, right? Come on. There we go. Number four, we're speaking about the already disciples of Jesus. Already disciples of Jesus hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay, now let let me help us think it through like this. 
a person who knows, number one, that they have nothing to impress God with, in other words, poor in spirit, is grieved at the slowness of the coming kingdom, mourns how long it's taking for God's kingdom to come, and who knows that she or he can't defend themselves, they need to leave it to God, in other words, demonstrating meekness, such a person begins to feel hungry for true righteousness in the Spirit of God. Do you see how it works? Such a person becomes increasingly, acutely aware of their need of God, and so it starts in their heart a thirst and a hunger that they can't quench. See, the, the irony of following Jesus, I've found, is that the longer I do it, the more my need grows. The more I realize I need Him. You don't get better at it, you almost get worse at it. It's almost like I feel like I need Him more and more and more. Last week, Sharon led us in that beautiful old song. Oh, I need you. How I need you. Every hour, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. Right? And if that guy had lived a little bit longer and written it a little bit later in his life, he would have changed the hour to minute and then to second. See, Jesus, just like poor where Jesus just takes a, a literal word that we would understand and says, this is what I want you to be. Jesus takes two words here, hunger and thirst, and we immediately know what they mean. And in fact, our society knows it far less than what these guys reading it would have understood it. They would have been very familiar with hunger, very familiar with thirst, because you didn't jump in your car and drive to the Karoo, you walked there, and you got very thirsty when you were walking there, and you weren't so sure, because Google Maps didn't tell you where the next watering hole was, so you had to kind of guess and got very thirsty right? That's this context these guys understand. What is it like to be hungry? Well, here's some ideas. When you're hungry, doesn't it distract you from the thing you're trying to do? When you're really thirsty, like your mouth is dry, parched, thirsty, it's quite hard to sit and work until you've got a drink, right? When you're really hungry or thirsty, don't you want to deal with that hunger or thirst? It's a priority, you can push it out your mind, you can try, but it's tough to do anything. That's why fasting, incidentally, plug for fasting, is so effective. I love fasting because it reminds you over and over again, every time you're like, oh, I really need something to eat. You go, oh no, actually what I really need is God. What I really need is to be hungry for the true bread, not for lasagna. My mom did make a delicious lasagna last night. Actually, I think it was my sister, but it was really good. That's neither here nor there. <laughs> Sorry. Sometimes I'm just verbal processing. But hunger or thirst becomes a fixation, right? Hunger or thirst becomes a fixation. It makes us push other things aside. That's what Jesus is using these two words to describe. He's saying, when you have one, two, and three... When you are experiencing this poverty of spirit and you're like, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? When you're experiencing some of the meekness and some of these things that the one, two, and three speak about, whatever you're doing, whatever your degree or your job, it doesn't matter what you're doing with your time, this thing like thirst or like hunger begins to push its way into your workplace and you can't just be the kind of boss you used to be because something in your heart is growing and now you're beginning to hunger and thirst for righteousness and you don't feel satisfied anymore with the levels that were perfectly fine three years ago. 
And you know, you, you, in your marriage, and you, and you treat your wife in this way, your wife treats you in this way, you treat your kids in this way, and suddenly it's not okay anymore. Not because you, you, you've got a checkbox and you're like going, all right, today, righteous, good with the kids. No, because God is doing a work in your heart and He is stirring. He is making it hungry and making it thirsty. Have you ever noticed that you can't really, you don't need to think about being hungry? You don't need to think about getting thirsty. Important, 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 important. This is describing, again I'm saying it, the already reality of a disciple of Jesus. You don't make yourself hungry. You don't make yourself thirsty. If you don't see this rightly, then you're going to read this text and you're going to, this is what you're going to conclude. I have to make myself very thirsty and hungry for God. Then you're going to go to the next step. I don't think I'm making myself hungry and thirsty enough for God. Maybe you're going to go to this side and you're going to go, I wonder if I'm hungry or thirsty enough for God. And you're going to start worrying, am I hungry enough? Am I thirsty enough? And so then you're going to swing into one of a few ways. One of the ways you could swing to is legalism. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to show God that I'm worthy. Or you might swing into emotionalism. Look, look God, look how hard I'm trying. Look God. All sorts of ways we can swing, right? Do you get it? Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you don't know him, I'm not, I'm not sure, you might want to come up at the altar call at the end again. Very, uh, thanks Debs. <laughs> he says this, he says, the first seven Beatitudes are like climbing and descending a mountain. Um, Natasha, why don't you throw up that a triangle for me over there? Yeah. He says, your first three Beatitudes poor, mourn, meek, are almost, you're almost ascending the mountain. Jesus is describing what a disciple is like. Then the pinnacle is hunger and thirst. As you begin to, these things awaken, these three things awaken in your heart, you begin to feel a hunger and a thirst in your heart for more of God. And then he says, on the descent, you begin to act in those ways. You begin to act mercifully. You begin to act more pure in heart. It's not a tick box. You begin to act like that. You begin to act in the peacemaker way. I labeled it a little bit further, although I, I, I dread to add anything to Martin Lloyd-Jones, but I added these three things on them. If you could just put them up one at a time for us. It just helped me when I was thinking about it. So I called those first three the state of the heart. It's God getting at the state of our heart. What's, what's he describing? It's the state of what our heart is like. Then the next one is the cry of the heart. As that, as that begins to happen, our heart begins to cry to God. Please fill me, God. Please do more. And then in the last one, the response of the heart. Just to help me. It was just helpful for me to frame it. So maybe it's helpful for you as well. And I'm inserting that there because I want to go into the next Beatitudes now, but I think it's really helpful to see those three going up the one side, God describing this, the state of our heart, and then reaching that place of the cry, and now we're going to just talk a little bit and quite quickly about the response of our heart. So the fifth Beatitude that Jesus says is, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be satisfied. And my, the way I've just 
shorthanded, that is already disciples show mercy because they have received mercy. Do you remember what mercy means? Mercy means not getting what you do deserve. That's mercy. Not getting what you should get. You should get punished. You don't get punished. That's mercy. And the thought of this beatitude is not, here's a rule for your life. You must be more merciful. Rather, it's a response to what God has already done and is doing in me. So now I'm actually going to read uh, Michael Eaton for you. He says, the thought of this beatitude is not, this is a rule for your life, you must be merciful. Of course, such a rule is quite true. We must indeed be merciful. But this is not the atmosphere of the Beatitudes. Jesus says to us, you are in the kingdom. Congratulations. Isn't it marvelous to be living in a kingdom of mercy? Life will be so much more enjoyable. Jesus is assuming that the disciples are already within reach of living in such a way. They are inside the kingdom already in one sense. They are standing at the gate. They have already experienced mercy from God. They are about to become people of mercy themselves. And Jesus says, congratulations. Blessed are you. Blessed are the merciful. Friends, there's no need to remind you of the unmerciful, hostile world that we live in. Cancel culture is effectively a product of an unmerciful world. You will get what you deserve. We will make sure you get what you deserve. In fact, we'll also take your business down with you to make sure you understand that you deserve to get this. Right? Digging up photos of politicians 30 years ago. Isn't this so desperately needed? This teaching of Jesus. Already disciples of Jesus get to show mercy. Think about, I mean, the easiest way to understand this is simply Jesus telling the parable about the man who's forgiven millions. And then he walks out and sees Johannes who owes him 25 rand and wants to strangle him because he hasn't given him his 25 rand. We get to show it because we've received it. Number six, already disciples long for pure hearts. This is what verse eight says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, so many people want us to live the right way. Right? Have you experienced that? Parents, how, t how tempting is it as a parent to just get your child to do the right thing, especially when they go to church or when you come to the church camp? How easy is it to, to parent our kids in a way that's just listen, just do, just be, behave? How hard is it to parent our children in a way that is blessed or the pure in heart? I'm going at the heart. Even if other people think I'm being a terrible dad, actually I'm more interested in what's going on in this child's heart in this moment than trying to just make him behave. Now obviously I'm not talking about like condoning ill-behaved behavior, but do you, right? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Okay, no need to explain. Thank you. Pastors, how many of us sit in many sermons where it feels like what we're trying to do is change the exterior? Be better. Look at Jesus. 
If we don't take people from Jesus to the cross to help them understand that we have power in what Jesus has done for us, all they're left feeling is crushed. All they're left feeling is, look at Jesus. Look how incredible Jesus was. Be more like Jesus. And you go, I'm trying, but I can't. Blessed are the pure in heart. We desperately need a world where we're not just concerned with the external, but concerned with, are, are we really seeing God change our hearts? Number seven, and we do have to go fast, already disciples are peacemakers because God made peace with them. Friends, I know there's a lot of concern around the world right now, and rightly so. There's awful things going on, wars and rumors of wars and Russia and Ukraine and all these awful things. But let me tell you, there's far worse things happening in our world when it comes to peace and peacemaking. People do not know God. The greatest break of all all mankind, the greatest war of all mankind is that people do not know God. There's not peace between many people and God. And those of us who have received the peace of God, not, not the pagan version, people in the world, they love to talk about peace. They love to say, you know, every beauty pageant, world peace, world peace, world peace, right? Let's have world peace. What they mean is, let's be really comfortable. Let's have really, everyone must have money, right? Enemies must leave us alone. Enemies must stay that side of the border. This is our border. You stay that side, we this side. Leave us alone. The Bible is not as interested in your hammock and your holiday by the sea as you think. It's dealing with a much greater break in peace. Me and God. So when Jesus is saying, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God, it's pointing to the most wonderful thing that God has done. God the Father has brought peace. By giving His own Son, He's brought peace. And when we act in peace, in that kind of peace, what He's effectively saying is, hey, you look like me. Look, you're my son. Wow, you look just like your dad. You look just like your mom. That's all it's saying. Before we get to the very last one, let me pause and ask you this. Can you imagine a world like this? Can you imagine a Stellenbosch like this? Where everyone was aware of their sin. Poor in spirit. Imagine. Everyone was running around under, like poor in spirit. Like I feel poverty in my spirit. I know I need help. I'm desperate for help. I'm dependent on God to help me. Imagine Stellenbosch where people were running around grieving, mourning injustice, including their own. Imagine everyone not fighting for their rights, standing up for my promotion, what I need, my demands. Imagine a place where people longed and thirsted and hungered it felt so current, so real, like hunger and thirst to do what was right before God and man. Imagine a town full of mercy. Imagine a place where you, what you were inside mattered more than pretenses and hypocrisy and smoke and mirrors and pretending and behavior, pure in heart. Imagine when, a place where man was at peace with God and let me just ask you a very simple question. Would that be the blessed life? Wouldn't that be the most blessed 
Stellenbosch we could imagine? People living like this? Wouldn't it be flourishing? The Bible calls that the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus simply says, when he teaches us to pray, he says, this is what I want you to pray. I want you to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it already is in heaven. And that's what Jesus is praying. And yet, one of the great ironies is that those who try to live like this, those who try to, they can look at it, they can look at Stelly's or wherever you might come from this morning, and they can fear, and they, they can see it, and they can go, this is how we want to live our lives. And other people look on them, and this is what happens. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You'd think if a group of people started to try and live like that, that everyone would stand and applaud. But instead, as you feel the brokenness of your own sin, it seems to act like a mirror to others about their sin. And so they get really cross with you because you're judging them. And on and on we could go through each of the Beatitudes and look at how these things can, instead of producing, of course there's some people who stand and applaud the morality of Christians. There's some people who stand and, and, and love the lifestyle or whatever it might be, or the community, or they pick out one or two things that they really like. But in general, we are not a group of people who run around with everyone going, blessed, wonderful, so glad you're in our town. It's like those Christians, man. Those Christians. You know, you know the worst of that is, Christians on other Christians. Shofar. Mm. Yeah, every nation. Have you seen what they're doing? Cedars. Have you seen the building? I mean, have you seen the building they're building? <clears throat> Imagine what those millions could do for the poor in this town. Right? Taking cheap shots. Shooting holes in the very boat we're standing in. Shout, preach it for me while I get a drink of water. <laughs> Woo! There we go. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You see, already disciples accept that this earth is not their home. We know that we're living for a kingdom that's not here. Aslan is roaming. Aslan is walking the fields. But Aslan hasn't brought us home yet. And if you don't know, is that my timer? Someone's chicken is getting burnt in the oven, guys. Bless that chicken in Jesus' name. Multiply it. <laughs> it's only going to be this big by the time you get home. <laughs> All right, let me end it because of that wonderful alarm. Thank you. All through this preach, friends, you might be, you might be someone who's not a, even an already believer. You might be saying, you're talking about the already disciples. I don't even follow Jesus yet. Or you might be sitting there even as someone who already, already follows Jesus and you say, this is not the reality I'm seeing. I don't feel like the kingdom of heaven is on earth as it is in heaven. I see all the sin and the pain of the world and I don't feel comforted. I see it in myself and I feel hopeless and unable to overcome it. I look inside myself and I have no ability to overcome it. And I'm going to leave you with an analogy that I read by D.A. Carson, I think was the first place I read it. He, he speaks about the D-Day, 1944, the 6th of June, I think it was, 1944. D-Day is the day where historians say the war was won. Millions of people, I think, I think well, 
Let me not exaggerate. I think it was 1.1 million men are estimated to have died after D-Day, before the end of the war. But effectively, the war was ended on D-Day, 6th of June, 1944. But Victory Day, VE Day, if you know your history, was still a year away. And in that year, they kept fighting, and they kept living, and they kept trying to. And 1.1 million more young men and some women too, I, I suppose, were killed. See, Revelation describes our VE day. Revelation describes a day where there is no more tears, where there's no more sin. Don't think your neighbor, think yourself. Where there's no more cancer, where there's no more blindness, where there's no more reading this stuff and understanding it in part and feeling like, oh my goodness, how am I ever going to live up to that? Because we realize in fullness when we get there that we don't have to, because Jesus did. What a glorious day where our ankles are going to be strong. I have a sore ankle. <laughs> new bodies, brand new bodies. Whatever it looks like, whatever, it's, whatever it is that's plaguing you in your heart right now, we have had D-Day. Jesus has come. Jesus has risen. Jesus has ascended. Praise God. But we're living in the echo of the kingdom not yet come. It's the already not yet. Yes, it's happened. Yes, we know the war is won. Aslan is on the move. But we're not there yet. And friends, it's okay. It's okay to have moments where we're really discouraged. And it's really hard. And we see brokenness and we see sin in ourselves and we see death and we, we bury people we love. And we see our friends mourn, whatever it might be. It's okay because the king has won. VE day is coming. It's just not here yet. It's just not here yet. And that's why Jesus can say, blessed are you when you're persecuted. When people don't understand your mission, blessed are you. Blessed are you, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. We're not there yet. For so they persecuted the prophets who came before you. I've got lots more to say, but I think I'm going to end it right there. Maybe let me end off with one more thought. Can you see how completely different it is? You know when you sing, the Lord bless you, you know that song? And keep you. We loved it. COVID, right? That was like the COVID breakout song, right? Top Christian hits. Make his face shine upon you, and may his favor be upon you and your children and their children. And I'm like, whoa, singing that song, all right? What blessings are you thinking about on your kids? What are you hoping God does? Get them home safe in the car, prosper them. I'm thinking those things, just being honest. Right? And those are not bad things. Those are good things. But this, this text, like so many texts in the Bible, but this one in, in, in a, quite a unique way, reminds us again of the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. What we call blessing, hashtag blessed, is not hashtag blessed in the Bible. It's very different. Very, very different. God's understanding of blessing is profoundly different. And we have to, as believers, as already disciples of Jesus, we have to get comfortable with the fact that what God calls blessing is very different. You can be absolutely poor this morning. Two rand in your bank account. 
minus 10,000 rand in your bank account. And God can look at you and say, you're absolutely blessed. You can have 2 million in your bank account. And God can also say, you're absolutely blessed. Because he works on another whole way. All right, now I really must end. I'll just finish by saying that you can go and look at Jesus in every single one of these Beatitudes. Take them, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and you'll find the perfect example. Poor in spirit, humble, gentle, mourning for the world. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I long to gather you. Father, it's good to be with you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the words of Jesus. Thank you for our town. In the name of Jesus, I want to pray that every shred of condemnation that is sitting over people here this morning, over Christians who feel like they have to earn it, somehow prove it, over those who are seeking you this morning, maybe they haven't even made a commitment to you yet, but they are in their hearts, they're trying to show you that they're good enough. They're trying to show you that they're well enough coming coughing into your kingdom and they haven't heard you say it's the sick who need a doctor not the well to come and break condemnation in the name of jesus freedom in jesus name to come and show us how you're already doing these things in us i pray this week for encouragement in hearts in the room just little evidences of being reminded that God's already doing it. He's already doing it. Flood us with grace and your joy this week as we go about our daily tasks in Jesus' wonderful and glorious name. Amen.